Heavenly Father, we ask that as we go into the book of Judges this morning, as we consider these long ago events in a distant land, that you could take what's been written and what's being provided today in the text and you would turn it to, uh, to things in our hearts that are relevant and immediate in our lives, that we'd see things here, Father, we never expected to see, and that we'd be uh, concerning ourselves, thinking of things in our life that you want us to deal with, to confront, to repent, to reconcile with things, Father, that are perhaps not what we expected to hear in the text, but you and your wisdom and in the power you possess to turn our hearts and our ears in the way you desire, that, Father, you would use that power and we would be caught off guard if necessary so that when we see what we see and we hear what we hear, we would know what we must do. And that the word spoken, the word written, the word lived out would glorify your name. And that the lessons we would see in the pages before us today would be lessons that we know you prepared for us each in your own way. That we would be we would be made more in the likeness of Christ through what we learn and that we would serve you with a greater sincerity and a greater urgency. Things, Father, that must be if the kingdom is to to come in the way you intend. And we ask the Lord to be a part of that plan, a part of that process knowing full well that it begins in our hearts, that we must first be the one you want us to be. Let our word, let your word, Father, be our word in our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago when I was here, we introduced the first of the 12 judges that make the book of Judges what it is. The man Othniel, remember a little of his story, I hope. It was a very little story, actually. It started with a pattern that we're going to look at repeatedly. The pattern began with Israel sinning. Now that they are in the land, they sin by doing evil, by worshiping idols in the land. That began this pattern, we noticed. And then we saw the Lord respond by putting Israel into captivity at the hands of their enemies, enemies that he brought all the way from Mesopotamia. And then after eight years of that kind of oppression, the people cried out for relief. And that's when we saw the Lord raise up this man, Othniel, from within the nation of Israel and gave Othniel the spirit of God and the strength to free Israel from this oppressor. And then to finish the pattern, then this man, now having freed Israel, rules Israel as a judge for 40 years. And in that 40 years, the people were told, more or less, return to a state of obedience under the law. That was the beginning of the book of Judges. That was the first judge. And what that first judge did in his very short story was give us a pattern. Othniel's story was very short, and other judges are going to have much longer accounts. But in all cases, the details of each situation or of each judge will matter a lot less than the pattern that is going to be reinforced across all of these 12 judges. And that's the pattern I just outlined for you of sin and then of punishment or of correction from the Lord and then a cry, a repentant cry for relief. And then the Lord showing up with a rescue or redemption through a man or a woman that is a judge. Samuel, who wrote this book kept Othniel's story so very short so that we would have the opportunity through his example to see this pattern very, very clearly, unfiltered, uncluttered, just the essence, the bare bones of it. And that's what we saw it last time. And as I said, the pattern always begins with Israel doing evil, despite the fact that they had the law and they had the Lord's blessing and then a judgment of some kind. And then that judgment leads to repentance. Then that repentance leads to the Lord raising up someone, a judge, and then for a time after that, the judge will have an opportunity to restore order in the land. Now, there's a corollary or a, a feature of this pattern that we also need to understand. 
Every time this wheel turns, so to speak, the pattern is less successful at bringing Israel back into obedience. Each turn of this wheel degrades just a little more over the course of the 12 judges. The destructive nature of sin and idolatry erodes the opportunity for Israel's future repentance and future obedience. And that means each successive judge is less effective in controlling the people's hearts. And the judges themselves actually become less righteous. The judges will start to become messier, as I said last time. Not quite so righteous, not quite such a hero, more of a complicated figure. Samuel, for example, records nothing negative about Othniel. Though he's not perfect, he's left in our eyes to be a righteous man. But that's because Samuel's preparing to show us this degradation. So as he gives us more detail about these judges, we're going to see more and more of their dark side. But all of this is teaching us something very fundamental. The human heart is desperately wicked. That sin is a huge problem in the lives of God's people. And that law, even God's law, and human judges, even human kings, cannot rescue men from this dilemma. They may be useful to God in some small measure, but they do not ultimately serve the purpose of solving this problem. So where will Israel find the answer to the problem of sin and their inability to keep the law? Where is that answer going to ultimately be found if it cannot be found in these ways? Well, this book of Scripture gives us exactly the same answer that every book of Scripture gives us. And that answer, of course, is men and women need not a law on stone, but a law written on their hearts. And they need not a human judge with all his own sin and imperfection, but he, we need the judge who has the capacity and mercy to forgive. And we need a king who will rule in peace. That is, of course, we need the Messiah. So if you learn nothing more from the book of Judges than this, you learn that you need Christ to solve the problem of sin. So let's go back into the story of Judges. And today with a new judge, our second judge, but again with a familiar pattern. We begin in chapter 3, verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Well, once again, you see the pattern begin here with that telltale phrase, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, in this case, you're not told what they did, not like in the first case. But because this is the same pattern, we don't need to have the detail because Samuel's already defined what it is we know must be going on. Doing evil in the book of Judges is shorthand for worshiping idols, worshiping other gods. So we just heard at the beginning of chapter three that Othniel had been successful in bringing Israel back to himself for 40 years. And then Othniel dies. And now you see, after 40 years of peace, the nation back in idol worship. And the cause for them returning to this state of disobedience is, as I said, verse 11, the death of Othniel, the death of the prior judge. So apparently the death of that judge of Othniel gave opportunity for the people to return to their sinning ways. You know, you have a perfect parallel in your everyday lives for what's behind this kind of turn, especially if you are a parent or have ever been a parent. 
How long does a young child remain obedient to the rules of the house when you're not there? Not very long. Even the best kids will find a way sooner or later to go off and do what is right in their own eyes. Even adults do this, of course. It's not unique to children. But I'm using the example of a child because what holds a child to the law of the house? The parent, your active participation with them, your participation in the rule setting and in the rule keeping and in the punishment when rules are broken and in the reminding of the child all the way through that process that they must obey. In other words, the moment you take the foot off the pedal, all the progress will stop or usually will stop, at least until they get to such an age when perhaps they have that internal compass by which they do what's right because they want to do what's right if they ever get there. So this pattern is now showing up in the lives of these adults and God now playing the role of the parent. When the judge that he's appointed disappears, it does not take long for the people to revert right back to where they were before. And this pattern is not unique to the Israelites. All mankind follows this pattern and not just children. And it also includes Christians. Try as you might, try as I might. We cannot obey the Lord and refrain from sin unless we have help. Unless we have help, which means in human terms, accountability and encouragement. And yes, sometimes correction in the church. So within the body of Christ, we have all of these things available to us, or at least we should have these things available to us if the church is operating properly. And you need to take advantage of that. You need to have someone in your life to hold your feet to the fire, at least in some way, if not your spouse or a good friend or an elder or someone in the church. You need someone with godly counsel to be with you in this walk of faith. Because if you think you are an island and you can stand up to the temptations and the schemes of the enemy by yourself, Scripture would call you a fool. James tells us to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. And he does so in the context of talking about how we can be strengthened through trials and how we can be ready to face the schemes of the enemy. We need that support if we're going to stay in the Lord's will. But above all of that, we need the spirit of God who resides, who lives in us. That is the unique and supreme blessing that the church has, different than what God has given to saints in past ages, this deposit of his spirit. And it is by the spirit's presence in our life that we have been given both the awareness of what is right, but also the power to actually do it. That is to say, we have the potential by the Lord through his spirit to live in obedience to the law written on our heart if we choose to follow him and not to follow our flesh. Now, in the day of the judges, the Lord did not give the deposit of his spirit to each and every member of the nation. That is, those who knew him by faith. The people of Israel did not possess that blessing. On occasion, as we studied here before, the Lord would put his spirit upon a person for a period of time for a purpose. But he did not provide that as a rule to all. What did he provide? What way did God provide for his people in those days to walk the straight and narrow? To have the support needed to do so. Well, he provided prophets. He provided judges. Later, he provides kings. And these men and sometimes women were the way God provided for Israel the ability to promote obedience, to, to do as they had been told to do. Not perfectly, obviously. No more than you and I live perfectly simply because we have the spirit in us. But they had the potential if they were willing. Those who took full advantage of that provision pleased the Lord. But these judges were temporary and their power was insufficient to the task of promoting righteousness among the people. It was an accommodation for the time. It was not the solution. So when you look at the passage we just read in verse 12, 
you quickly move from step one, doing evil, to step two, which is the Lord empowering. Here we see three of Israel's enemies to do his bidding, to chasten them, to correct them. The three enemies are the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. Now, you may remember some of these names from our Genesis study. These are three nations that surrounded the nation of Israel. They're being led as a united force by the king of the Moabites, King Eglon. The Moabites and the Ammonites, you may remember, are descended from Lot. From that incestuous affair with Lot and his daughters and after they left Sodom and that whole story we studied, the descendants of those two daughters are the Moabites and the Ammonites, enemies of Israel. And then the Amalekites were descended from Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. So you see these three people groups who God long ago declared would be enemies and oppressors of Israel. They're now beginning to fulfill their prophetic purpose in God's plan. He's now going to use them. He's going to use people groups who came out of sin and out of disobedience and turn them to good, at least in the sense that he uses them to chasten his own people, Israel. And so they begin an assault, we're told. They take first the city of Palms, which in Scripture, that's always a reference to Jericho. So they come across the Jordan and they retake Jericho. Now, this is not the Jericho that was destroyed when Joshua came into the city. It's very near the same spot. It's a new Jericho that's been rebuilt in the days since Joshua came into the land. After the Moabites come in, they take that city. They make that city their defensive headquarters in capturing all of what is modern day Israel. And they make the nation of Israel, all the tribes of Israel, slaves for 18 years. And all of this happens because we're told in verse 12 that the Lord strengthened them for this purpose. Now, once again, you might be looking at the story, shaking your heads just a little bit at the fact that the Israelites were so stubborn that they couldn't have learned the lesson the first time. Here we go again. It's the same pattern. First time around, you may remember they were oppressed for eight years before the Lord raised up Othniel. You may know the number eight in the Bible stands for new beginnings. Children, for example, in Israel are circumcised on the eighth day because that's a new beginning in their life. The eighth day of a week is a new week. So in a way, you could say that after eight years of captivity, Othniel was raised up, and that was a way of the Lord saying to Israel, let's try this again. Let's have a new beginning. I gave you eight years to think about it. Now let's try again. New beginning. And so he gave him 40 years of peace, 40 being the number of testing in Scripture. So in effect, the Lord was saying, I'm giving you 40 years under Othniel to see if you will serve me according to my law this time. And then Israel squandered that new beginning. And so now what's the Lord done this time? This time he's put him under judgment for 18 years. Now, the number 18 is not significant in and of itself, but because it's double nine and nine is significant, Nine being the number of judgment in Scripture. This is a second judgment, twice nine. The second time God is providing judgment to them. Now, in effect, the Lord is saying in this case, for failing this second time, I am now giving you double judgment. Now, I hesitate to make rules out of examples in Scripture because you can get into some dangerous corners when you do that. Not everything you read in Scripture is a prescription. A lot of it is just a description of what has happened. But I think in this case, there is a principle emerging in Scripture for how the Lord works with his children. When you fail or when we fail to change our ways in response to the Lord's correction, he responds with still greater and stronger measures. The Lord is long suffering, we're told. He's patient. He's loving. He's forgiving. 
And he is merciful with his adopted children. But friends, you and I can test that patience if we repeatedly sin, especially if we do so in the face of his correction. And what I tend to see in my own life, perhaps you'll agree with me, and certainly what we see happening here in Scripture, is that early missteps, early steps of sin, where we knowingly go off track from what the Lord has asked us to do or from what his word asked us to do, we, we sin with our eyes wide open. Early missteps like that will often receive mild rebukes from the Lord, if any. Perhaps a, a moment of embarrassment with a friend or a spouse. Perhaps a word of correction from someone in the church. Perhaps just some inner feelings of guilt and conviction or some minor consequence that reminds us that that's not what God wants us to do. But if we persist in our sinning, I mean, in other words, friends, if we just don't get it, then we should expect, although it's not necessarily a rule in all cases, we should expect that our loving Father in heaven is going to dial up the correction. Because that's the loving thing to do, is it not? Because if you won't pay attention to the soft word, why would we not expect a harsher correction in some form? The Lord's not going to leave us without the benefit of correction. If your earthly fathers being sinful gave you good gifts, then how much more your father in heaven is able to give you good gifts? If you being imperfect can still find a way to do the right thing on occasion, then why wouldn't you expect your perfect heavenly father to always do the right thing? And friends, when you're looking at a stubborn, disobedient child, the loving right thing to do is correct them, not ignore them. If you being sinful know how to do that for your kids, wouldn't you expect the Father in heaven to do that for you? Out of love. And Israel's our perfect example. The Lord is dealing with Israel with tremendous patience, wouldn't you agree? You go back into the time of Joshua and actually even further into the times of the wanderings in the desert. How many times did Israel test the patience of the Lord? How many times did they grumble against him? How many times did they disobey him? He hadn't even finished giving the law and they had already broken the first commandment on the way down the hill. When Moses came down. So we, we get the fact that the Lord has had plenty of opportunity to deal with disobedience. And he's been nothing if he hasn't been patient. And what has he done? Well, he hasn't crushed them. He hasn't destroyed them. He hasn't put an end to them. But neither has he tolerated their disobedience. As they fail to heed the lessons that he taught in one generation, then he would increase the pressure on future generations. He would continue to make the same point over and over again, and to make that point even more forcefully if needed. You and I cannot defy the Lord and expect him to turn a blind eye forever. I think one of the more chilling aspects of the way correction often takes place in our lives is sometimes the Lord will give us just enough rope to hang ourselves. Along with escape, along with opportunity to escape temptation always, Continue in your sin or take this exit ramp. You've heard me use this example probably in the past in reference to the way the Lord gives us escape from temptation. I compare it to being on a freeway. And sometimes when you get into a, a mindset of sin, it's like putting on the gas pedal on your vehicle on the freeway. You just get ahead of steam up and you just you just kind of keep going. Even as you say to yourself, I shouldn't be doing this. You just plunge straight into it because it's it's almost inertia at that point. The flesh has control and you're having trouble getting it back. But the Lord, being so kind and loving, even as he has set up correction for us down the road, he's put exits like you see on the freeway every so often. And all he's asking us to do is just take a small turn. Just make a small step in the, in the direction of repentance and fly up the freeway off ramp instead of down the freeway and find out what comes at the end of that ramp. And what you'll find is God is so merciful and kind and loving that he is prepared to pull you up that ramp, to guide you off that way of sin. 
But he does in his economy. He does ask us to take the step of repentance. And I'm not talking here about the repentance that leads to salvation. I'm talking about how the process of sanctification works in the life of the believer. But he asks us to take the first step and then he pulls us forward. Now, of course, we don't have to. We can choose to just hold the steady course down that road. If we persist, then the consequences of our sin will eventually take hold and they will ultimately spill over into others' lives. Sure enough, in this case, as the correction takes hold, and now you see the entire nation enslaved, even the ones who perhaps were not engaged in idol worship, they're caught up in it. But at some point, that correction takes hold, and then we hear that the people of Israel cry out to the Lord in verse 15. Step three, as we count them here, verse 15, it says, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now we're introducing here the second of the judges in the book of Judges, Ehud. He's a Benjamite. And it makes some sense that the Lord would raise up a Benjamite for the second judge because King Eglon, the enemy, has set up his, his quarters, his home base in the land in the city of Jericho. And Jericho is located in the tribe of Benjamin. So, therefore, it would make sense that a local boy would be selected to go up against Eglon and to defeat him. Now, Ehud is described as a left-handed man. And that term's a bit misleading in the English. And here's why. First of all, if we were merely saying this guy is left-handed, it would be an obscure and really weird thing to highlight in the text of all the things you could say about this person. It's not that he just prefers his left hand. First, let's understand that the name Benjamin itself, and this guy is from the tribe of Benjamin. We just heard that. He's a Benjamite. The word Benjamin, the name Benjamin, means son of the right hand. Son of the right hand, which refers to the son of greatest honor. That's what right hand means. But the fact that this Benjamite uses his left hand becomes irony in this story because he's from the tribe of the right hand. But he's left-handed. That's the first thing you have to notice. Second thing. The phrase itself in Hebrew is an indication that he uses his left hand out of necessity, not out of preference, out of necessity. In other words, it's as if his right hand, his right arm is damaged. It's handicapped. There's some reason why his right hand is not fully there. He doesn't have full use of it. So he is left handed by need, by necessity. Whatever the reason, though, Ehud is a man who is limited to fighting with only his left hand. It's as if he is literally fighting with one hand tied behind his back. That's the kind of guy God has raised up. Now, when you take these two details together, you come to understand the Lord is raising up a weak hero, a man to lead Israel out of their predicament who no one would have assumed was the right guy for the job. And by the way, this isn't the only time you see the Lord doing that, right? This is not going to be the only time you see the Lord choosing the weak to shame the strong within Israel. And it's also not going to be the last time we see a left-handed Benjamite In the book of Judges, later we're going to see 700 of these guys, which we'll come back to and study later. But friends, you would be hard pressed to imagine a more unlikely hero than a one armed, left handed son of the right hand. Now, Ahud's limitations also explain the particularly interesting method that he chooses when he assaults King Eglon. Rather than lead a whole army up against him, which is what Othniel did in the first case, Ehud elects to attack like a Jewish ninja. And I like to think of him that way because it just makes the story a lot more cool. First, 
Imagine how effective he might have been if he had tried to go out and recruit an army to follow him into battle to go up against the king that was oppressing the people. Come on, guys, we're going to go fight and I'm going to lead you on. A one armed man doesn't exactly inspire confidence, among others, to join him in battle. Right. And secondly, it's likely he had a preference to acting alone because a secretive one man operation is probably even more likely to succeed under the circumstances than a full frontal assault. So it played into the strategy that he employs. So he begins his attack by forming a plan. And here's the plan. You're going to see more of it here in a minute. But we already have the beginnings of it in the verse I just read. He's going to go visit the king with a small delegation of Benjamites on the pretense that they are bringing payment of tribute or of taxes, basically, to the king. And he brings this tribute on behalf of the people of Israel as a part of the tribe of Benjamin. And then the rest of the plan unfolds. Let's read it. Verses 16 through 25. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, "Ah, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, and therefore they took the key and opened them. And behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. So as Ehud prepared to visit the king, we're told he begins by making this preparation. It involves first a small sword, about 16 inches in length, give or take. And this is not the usual length of a battle sword, usually to be much longer than this. So this is a small, more clandestine battle sword. Besides the fact that it's shorter in length, the other notable difference is it's double edged. Now, a double edged sword is especially dangerous for obvious reasons. It cuts on both sides as it would enter. That increases the lethality of the piercing. But of course, we also remember the term double edged sword from elsewhere in Scripture, right? That's a reference to what? To the word of God. It's referenced that way in Hebrews. It's repeated in the book of Revelation. This is the way by which Jesus will judge all. So in that way, you see Ehud is a picture of Christ in the fact that he is the ultimate judge. Jesus is judging all ungodliness in the future. And here you have Ehud sort of representing him by wielding a double edged sword in judgment to Israel's enemies. Next thing Ehud does is he hides it and he puts it down on his thigh. It's short so that he can hide it. And he puts it underneath his cloak on his right side right underneath his bad arm. Now, that makes sense because he fought with his left hand. So you cross draw. When you go to draw a weapon, you don't draw it from the same side as your body. It's very awkward. You draw it from across your body. That's a, a more efficient way to remove it. And so he's put it over here. Now, that works to his advantage in another way. Customarily, men always fought with the right hand. And so if he was to be searched for a weapon, the natural place they would look would be on his left side. And he'd have nothing there. 
Now, we don't know if he was searched, but the point is it was all working to his advantage, this plan that he had. And then it says he sets out with a small delegation to deliver the tribute. They arrive at the palace. Now, the order of events here can be a little confusing in the text. They come into the palace. They present the tribute as a team to the king. But interestingly, Ehud does not attack the king while he has the chance in that moment. The text doesn't say why, but he had the moment and he couldn't bring himself to do it. Instead, he and the delegation leave and they walk about a kilometer about six or seven tenths of a mile from Jericho to a place called Gilgal, which is only a short distance, about a kilometer away. That detail, though, is important because it reminds us Ehud is not a strong man. This man was not just weak physically. He was weak in fortitude. He was scared. The risk of attacking this king apparently was so much for him that he didn't want to take the risk in the moment. That means he's not a natural warrior, friends. He didn't come with bloodlust and the anxious desire to to mow this guy down. He went in hoping he could pull off the plan God gave him, and at the last minute he couldn't do it. This man is just like you or me, I think, or at least most people, in the sense that he's a living testimony of how the Lord uses men and women apart from their natural abilities and calls them to things that are greater than they might do on their own, Israel was defeated by three really strong armies because God strengthened them to accomplish that feat. And by that same token, he's now going to empower the least likely weak hero you could imagine who will single handedly reverse that outcome, defeating that force. That's what you have to see when you see his hesitation here. You need to see the weakness of his flesh. But of course, the Lord's not going to take no for an answer from this guy. And so look how the Lord turns his heart as Ehud is leaving the city. The Lord directs his path in such a way that he ends up at Gilgal, walking past Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is a location of great idol or temple worship in that time. There were idols set up in that place. Those would have been the idols of the Moabites. These are the idols that trapped the Israelites in the past. And these are the idols that their enemies are continuing to worship now that they're in the land. And as he passes these idols, it would seem that Ehud took another look at these idols on his way past and saw all that they represented. And all the devastation that they had wrought among the people and in the land for the past 18 years. And seeing that gave him courage to act. He now had his cause. He now had his reminder of why God wanted him to go after Eglon. And that's the love and the patience of God showing up to strengthen Ehud. That's why the Bible says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This was a strengthening moment for him. So under the conviction and the strengthening of the spirit... This judge to be goes back to the palace and notice he tells the rest of his team, you guys go on. I suspect because if he had brought them with him a second time, he would have been suspicious. And so he goes alone. So now, ironically, he didn't have the courage to do this the first time when he had the group with him. Now he's going to have to go back and do it all by himself. And he goes back to finish the deed. He arrives at the palace. He tells the palace staff, I have a secret message for the king. And they probably relayed that message to the king. That doesn't seem to me as though Ehud actually said that to the king directly. It's more likely he had to tell someone else first. They got the message up to the king. The king said, tell him to keep silent. In other words, don't share the message with anyone else. Bring him to me and I'll hear it personally. And then it says Ehud was granted access. And when he comes upon the king, he finds him alone on the roof of the palace. And they used to build rooms, enclosures on the roof of homes because in the hot day, the hot afternoon heat of that part of the world, the only place you could ever feel cool was up high where you could catch some of the breezes that blew in the desert during the day. So they're in the shade in a room, but they got air passing through. And so he's up in his chamber during the noontime. 
And as Ehud comes up to the king, repeats, I have a message from the Lord. And friends, that's not a lie, by the way. In a sense, Ehud is delivering a very specific message from the Lord. He's just delivering it at the point of a sword. It's a message that your life has come to an end today. And he delivers it. The king arises from his seat to receive the message. And at that point, he draws the sword and plunges it in that graphic description all the way into his body and leaves it there. Now, we were told earlier this guy is very fat. So that now becomes a relevant detail playing into the story, because as you hear, the sword disappears into the man's body, which means it would not have had the handguard more than likely. It was probably just the handle straight into a sword. So that would make it easier to penetrate. It goes all the way into his body. It goes in so far that not only does it disappear, but it emerges out the backside. And in doing so, the foul contents of his intestines come out with it out the backside. Now, why does the Bible have all this detail? If you're 13 and you're a male, you don't need an answer to that question. You're very content with the fact that it's there and you feel perfectly reasonable that it is. But for the rest of us, it just seems gratuitous, doesn't it? It seems a bit over the top. Well, it's there probably for two reasons. First, this would have been a delight for the Israelites to read about. This would have been a delight for them to know that the king of their enemies was dispatched in this way because his death now includes ritual uncleanliness, which was a humiliation in death. To us, that doesn't seem very important, but to the Israelites, it would have been. The man who held himself up as the one of highest station in the culture, the king, is now the most degraded. But more importantly, it gives us a greater understanding of the events of the story. The fact that the sword disappears means that there's no immediate evidence for how he died. It would have been unclear to them at first glance that he had been killed by a sword. He just looks like he keeled over. Look how Ehud escapes. He walks out the front door as if everything is normal. And then he closes the door behind and locks it. Somehow he must have had the ability to lock it and then close it. And then he departs the palace, no one the wiser that anything has taken place. Now, as soon as he leaves, of course, the staff who had been dismissed earlier runs up to go back to their work of attending to the king. And they find the door locked. Now, here's where one of those little gross details becomes an essential element in how God protected Ehud. They come to the door and what do they smell? They smell something that tells them, oh, don't bother him right now. He's going to the bathroom. The king would have had pots in every room that he occupied, clay pots that were designated dishonorable use pots to borrow from Romans nine. And he would have sat on these pots when he needed to. And then a servant would have whisked it away and brought him a clean one. And that's how they attended to him. So they're waiting for this to be over so they can go about getting the pot. And they're just saying, let's let's wait it out. But at some point, it's just been way too long, and now they're getting nervous. Eventually, they unlock the door. Notice what they find. They find the king fallen over dead. They don't say they found him murdered. They don't say they found the sword. In other words, the combination of the refuse and the way the sword is taken into his flesh allows enough time for Ehud to escape before anyone would consider he may have done something wrong and chase after him. And on foot, you need a fair amount of time to get away. And so this is how God protected Ehud. By the time it was clear that Elgon had been murdered, Ehud was long gone. It also gave opportunity for Ehud to get back and take step two of his plan. Verse 26. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying. That's the reference we just talked about. And he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was in front of them. He said to them, pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. 
So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So his escape, we're told, happens because of all the delaying I just mentioned. And then he, interestingly, passes by the idols. That's a reference to Gilgal again. He takes a second glance at him. I have to believe, though, that he looked upon the idols this time with a completely different sense than he did the first time. Right. Where before those idols stood to mock his cowardice and ultimately inspire him to obey the Lord. Now they are perfect representations of the dying king who once worshipped them. They are silent. They are impotent and they are unclean as he is now. Following that, he arrives in the hill country of Ephraim and he calls all the men with a trumpet from the surrounding area together. And he says, I'm sure it's not spelled out here, but you have to assume that he said, I killed the king. First of all, that gives confidence. Secondly, he says, the Lord is calling us now to act. And if you work with me, we can remove the Moabites from the land and the armies assemble. They attack at Jericho. Eventually, they drive the retreating Moabites to the Jordan. And as you can see, they had already seized all the fords, that is, the crossing points for the River Jordan. So they prevented the Moabites from escaping back to their home country. And in the ensuing melee, we hear 10,000 men or about 10,000 men of the Moabites are killed. And in that way, Moab is subdued. The land is freed for 80 years. This is a victory, friends, that was won not by Ehud's strength and nor even by his cunning. It's by his faithfulness, by his dedication to the task he was given. It was the Lord's strength that won the battle. And look at the final verse, a kind of curious footnote to the story of Ehud. Verse 31. Here you see another character just entering briefly and exiting in the same verse. Verse 31. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Now, this guy's a great mystery in Scripture. His name is not Hebrew. More than likely, he was a Hittite, which would have made him a Canaanite, a Gentile, in other words, a Gentile who had turned to the living God. But how does that relate to Ehud? Why is he stuck on here at the end of Ehud's story? Well, the phrase at the beginning of verse 31, the phrase after him could mean that he came after Ehud died. And if that were true, then you would say he's the next judge. Some have concluded that. And if you do, then you'd have 13 judges in the book of Judges and not 12. Obviously, since I've been telling you there are 12, you can already tell I don't count him as one of the judges. And the reason I don't is because I don't think it's the proper interpretation to say he came after Ehud died. If you glance at chapter four, for example, which should be right in the next verse of your Bible. How does chapter four begin in verse one with the passing of Ehud, with Ehud's death? And in the time after Ehud, you see the pattern repeat again, Israel going into evil and so on. It would make very little sense then to take the story of the next judge and his success and stick it in there in one verse before you get to the pattern of falling again. It seems completely out of order and there's not enough detail in any case. On the other hand, if the phrase is interpreted a little differently, if you say, well, after him does not mean after he lived, but rather after the actions of Ehud in killing the king or after what he did, this man then did something also. Well, then the whole situation changes. And that's what I believe you're seeing here. This man came and took opportunity to join the fight in the West after Ehud and his army took up the fight in the East. 
Because the Philistines occupied the coastal plain of Israel, which is the western border of the land, of the promised land. Jericho defines the eastern border. So all the fighting we've heard from Ehud, that's all on the east side. But the whole of the land was under the control of these enemies. And the Philistines largely dominated the coastal plain. So it would seem that as Ehud and his men were doing their work, the Lord raised another unlikely hero, Shamgar, a Gentile of all men, who was armed with nothing more than a big stick. An ox goat is just about an eight to ten foot sturdy pole with a pointy end that they used to goad or poke at oxen who were on a train so that the oxen would keep moving and working as they were intended. It was just meant to be like a whip. It's the same idea. So here's a guy who takes a big, long stick, a pointy stick, and kills 600 Philistines. I mean, I'd love to have seen how that played out. You talk about ninja. The Lord was clearly working by his spirit to empower others and in so doing ensures that Israel is protected on both sides, on both flanks, as this war is won. So as we look back on Ehud, the pattern's the same, so we've got that in our minds, but what have we added to our understanding through this second example? Well, first, the mere fact that the pattern continues is informative for us. Despite the nation's unfaithfulness, the Lord remained faithful. Israel cannot sin its way out of the covenant that the Lord has established, nor can we sin our way out of the new covenant. So there's point one I don't want to overlook. But as you disobey the Lord, he will respond, and his response is likely to get more severe the longer we test his patience. That would be point two. He doesn't do that to crush us. He's not vindictive. The intention is to bring repentance. And if you will not listen to a soft voice, then maybe you will listen to a louder one. And then lastly, we see the Lord using very unlikely, even weak people, men in this case, to bring relief. He brought a handicapped warrior. He even threw in a Gentile armed with very little. But together they defeated a fierce and entrenched enemy in the land. So, friends, if you are beset by the consequences of your sin and you are fighting an entrenched enemy in your life, one that the Lord is using to bring correction to your life, and you are ready to repent and you are done with the sin and you are done with the consequences and you want to turn back, then watch him respond in unexpected ways. Watch him bring victory in the least likely way. You don't have to see a hero on a white horse with a white hat ride into town to solve your problem. It may be the quiet voice of the neighbor or the friend or something you read tomorrow that you get handed by someone today. You don't know how the Lord's going to do it, but he can do it. It's not you that needs to win the victory. It's you that needs to turn to the Lord. He will win that victory. But it begins with repentance. He brings rescue to those who seek his mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, inspire in us repentance. Challenge us, Father, to obey. And then empower us, Father, to respond. I pray, Father, for those who are struggling in here, as we all do at times, that we would have hope today, that we would see that you can send such an unlikely hero to save a people who did not deserve it in the face of of an overwhelming enemy, then, Father, certainly you can take our weaknesses and you can take our sin and you can turn us back to yourself in small way, with small things, with, with weak things. And we can trust in that. All we ask, Father, is that you would give us that exit ramp and then, Father, give us the courage to take it. And let us take the journey that we want to take with you, Father, in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.